Hello, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is the Monday pod where we look back at the EFL weekend. We are sponsored by Betfair and we thank them for their continued support of this podcast. And I'm Ali Maxwell. With me on the line, George Ellick. How are you doing, mate? You okay? Yes, mate. I'm good. I'm in a hotel room in Liverpool. Ooh. Had a nice Sunday evening uh, on my Todd in town last night. Went to a nice Irish bar. Watched some watched some NFL and live music, which was yeah, which is nice. I didn't really know what's going on in the NFL. I've tried so many times to know to understand American football, and always struggle. Everyone always says play Madden, but I'm like, well, I don't really game unless it's football manager, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, and then had a good steak and chips in town, so yeah, very good. And playing some golf today. Okay, I am pretty excited to chat EFL football with you. It was the weekend that the championship was turned on its head. There were three first wins of the season in League One and some strong looking teams in League Two are marching on and one of them particularly looks like they might be pulling clear somewhat. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Just a note that for the first time ever on the pod I am podding while also in sole charge of a 15 week old puppy who is chewing the carpet next to me so far so good but if you hear some yapping that's not George upset with my questionable analysis that is nettle uh, so please bear with us both but uh, hopefully we should Although it is normally me chewing the carpet when I'm there so I'm glad someone else is taking on that role <laughs> um, okay let's crack on with championship weekend because yet yeah, turned on its head uh, is one way of putting it the bottom half ransacking the top half is another way of putting it. Only two teams in the top 12 at the start of the day won, and they were Bournemouth, who are now our league leaders, and Bristol City, who started the weekend in 12th. So quite a lot made no sense, and that's what we're going to try and discuss now. We're going to start with the two East Midlands clubs for various different reasons. They were in the news, Nottingham Forest for parting company with Chris Hewton and moving forward uh, with Stephen Reid as interim manager and getting a 2-0 win against Huddersfield. But also Derby County, who on Friday night uh, revealed that they would be filing for administration. Uh, And that means that they will now face a 12-point deduction from the EFL. Uh, That means that the, the future of the club and its staff, of course, is very uncertain. And it was a... Very emotional, but incredibly supportive Pride Park on Saturday at 3pm when Stoke came to town. And the Derby players responded in kind. George, let's talk about Derby 2, Stoke 1. And we'll start with the match itself before we talk about the off-field stuff. What an incredible first half performance from Derby. And it was enough to get them all three points here. Yeah, exactly. Start with the on-pitch stuff. Um, Although that might not be the most important thing to talk about. But I think given the performance... In the circumstances, um, we have to just give real credit to, to Wayne Rooney, to his players and, and for Derby County for getting the job done against a very difficult Stoke side. For Max Purd, you know, half an hour, this is, this is a guy who hasn't scored a, a league goal for Derby before this game, who's come through the Youth Academy, um, who probably has more in terms of an emotional connection to Derby County Football Club than most players who come through having been there, you know, having progressed through the academy. You'd have to assume he's a Derby fan. Uh, what a strike it was as well. That's his weaker foot. Unbelievable. Uh, I, I think you can almost tell in a weird way because just because the strike is quite like a, a a strange strike. It's not the way that you one would normally hit the ball. Um, it's you know it, it's it's basically moving horizontally by the time it hits the side netting in the top left hand corner. It's an unbelievable hit and and a brilliant goal on his twenty first um, birthday, no less. On his 21st birthday. So, yeah, for him to get that first goal, it, it surprises me that he hadn't got one already because he's a player who's, who's technically very gifted. Um, was huge. And then, you know, Curtis Davis, who doesn't score too many goals, um, getting the second. And then them 
holding on, uh, not necessarily kind of totally comfortably, but it, it wasn't. It didn't descend into into Stoke having plenty of chances and and Derby hanging on. That was the case against West Brom in midweek, where Kellerus was was the hero. Um, but four points from two games against two sides who currently occupy the top six is is impressive. And we've seen in in Wayne Rooney's very very short managerial career some early highs and lows. You know, he started incredibly well when he came in last season and then went on a huge slump. And it felt like the circumstances around that slump where they were just trying to get almost singular points in order to get them safe for, for next season probably made it quite difficult because starting the game at nil-nil every every match was kind of the result they wanted games to finish at in order to, to, to stumble over the line. And he got it done. He came in for some criticism and, you know, Myself, I don't know if you were the same, but having got quite excited about his his early start, I had a few people messaging being like, hmm, Wayne Rooney, mate, I, I think you may have jumped the gun with that one. And it kind of felt like like we maybe had. But what he's done so far this season far eclipses what, it, what he did at the beginning of his tenure last season. For them, in, in their circumstances, given where their squad was at the beginning of the campaign, given that they started the season odds on 4-6, 8-13 to, to, to get relegated, uh, for them to be on on 10 points through eight games. Yes, it's not particularly exciting and they've only scored six goals. But Rooney, has, has, Rooney and, and Rossini have turned this side into an incredibly tough team to break down. It, it's a classic case of, of where needs must. And, and I don't think if, if Rooney went in, say, I don't know, say Rooney got the Forest job, I don't think we'd necessarily, I mean, that is a, 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 a hypothetical there that I, I'm not I'm only using it. I'm only using it as an example because it is the only available job in the championship at the moment, not because I think it, there's any chance of it happening. But if, if he were to get a job like that, with different circumstances and different kind of levels of support and, and a different squad and a squad depth as well, that, that I'm sure we wouldn't see this kind of real backs to the wall um, type of, of management. But he deserves huge credit because what they're doing so far, if, if it is going to be a 21-point deduction that they get, that puts them on minus 11. It's going to be incredibly difficult, probably impossible for them to stay up. But having put 10 points on the board at this early stage, at least they're giving themselves something of a chance. They wouldn't be completely detached to start to... When, when the deductions do come in. You mentioned 21 points there. That's because filing for administration and going into administration faces an automatic 12-point deduction from the EFL. And of course, there is a separate uh, squabble with the EFL, which we thought was coming to a conclusion around this time. And it has been reported that there is a, a likely nine-point deduction um, for that separate dispute, which has been discussed quite a lot over the last year or two. Listen to the Price of Football special on the Derby County situation. If this is something that you'd like to learn everything about, that's where to go. That's out this morning. It's over an hour long. That's where you'll get Kieran Maguire's expert analysis and his opinion as well on the matter. And, and the mixture of those two things is, it, it means that that is definitely the premier podcast for football finance. Mel Morris, in this instance, is the, the owner and chairman of Derby County. Now, he said in his statement that the impact of coronavirus on Derby had been disproportionately higher than many of their championship rivals and that they wouldn't be going into admin if it were not for the pandemic. Now, that last bit may be true, um, but it's also very true that Mel Morris's Derby County have been losing money hand over fist for a long time now without seemingly getting any closer to the dream, if that's what it is, of the Premier League. And this sort of outcome although the timing was a surprise, probably not a huge surprise for us, who have seen time and time again teams flying way too close to the sun here, being allowed to fly way too close to the sun here, which is a separate issue, and now massively being burnt. And of course, at the end of the day, it's the fans, it's the staff of the club who suffer the most here. That, I mean, that last point is 
is the issue that I have here. And it's what Wayne Rooney was keen to point out in his post-match interview as well on, on Saturday, is that, yes, I understand the need for sanctions. And yes, especially when you know you look at the, the charges levelled at Derby, ignoring the, the you know, Mel Morris's justification of it, and there seems to be a, you know, a suggestion that they profited from some counting um, irregularities, let's say, and, and to therefore the deterrent of a points penalty, of a points deduction, I'm sure has been. Now that's what you forget. Uh, I'm sure that the points deduction penalty has been a deterrent many, many times for clubs in order to not do things that they were thinking about doing with their own finances. And that is important. But you are right in saying that the the people who are punished for this, yes, the club is punished, and yes, the you know the future of the of their on pitch um, de- destiny is is under threat. But at the same time, so many other people are punished, like fans, the fans who are just completely, who had no say in any of this going on are punished. Although I'm sure Derby will have quite a fun time in League One if they do get relegated, but let's ignore that. The players um, are harmed too in terms of their careers, but crucially, the people who work at the club, you know, people are going to lose their jobs at Derby off the back of this. Um, And yes, the, the point selection isn't necessarily the reason for that to happen, although it will mean the club shrinks in size somewhat and is unable to pay certain people. But this administration itself comes with so many punishments. I don't know. I, I kind of just feel like there has to be a better way. And and you mentioned it there. It's the, it's the custodians of the club who make these decisions who which lead to the club. Even if Mel Morris disagrees, they lead to the club going to administration or they make the decisions around the break the profit and sustainability rules. And I feel like there has to be more in terms of sanctions to them directly. I don't know the legality of it. Football's a pretty weird business, as we know, because you've got all of the, all of these privately owned businesses, who and the attempts to, to govern those have to always meet red tape because, at the end of the day, the FA, the EFL, can only impose some sanctions on footballing terms. You know, it's it's very difficult to walk over to someone and say, "Sorry, you're running your business wrong. We're going to punish you." But it's very very easy for them to say, "You you play in our league." we can actually hit you in terms of, of, of the league that we run. So it's a bit of a mess. I wish there was an easy solution. I feel incredibly sorry for Derby fans. Um, this is one of those occasions, I think, where, you know, it's similar before the Swindon before the Swindon takeover in the summer, where I think the whole of football just needs to look at Derby and, and feel pretty sad this has been allowed to happen. Um, of, often, you know, we've said it before, um, it may not really look to have made to be making sense for Ipswich Town at the moment. Um, but I think Sunderland are an example where even though they're going to end up spending at least four seasons down in League One, they're going to return back to the Championship when they inevitably do, whether it's this season, next, or the one after, or whenever, as a much better football, much better run football club, mm. at least. So often the relegation itself can be a good thing. That's crucial as well, isn't it? We all, yeah. we all get very upset or incredibly happy based on how our teams perform on a purely footballing level, whether they win promotion, whether they re- whether they suffer relegation, that's mostly what swings our emotions positively or negatively when it comes to supporting our club. But Sunderland spending four years in League One is still Sunderland playing football matches in front of their fans. They're still a football club. Yeah. And Derby as a football club is not ending today. It's not ending this week. It's not ending because of administration. Wigan Athletic entered administration uh, 18 months ago. Um, it's it's impressive, to be honest, how quickly uh, good things can come from really, really poor situations. But there's a lot of pain to come. Of course, there is. And that's what's really difficult. But the fans who showed up in numbers 
on Saturday who supported a team that they can be proud of, a manager that they seem to be very proud of. They're the ones who can, with their spirit and their support and their energy, positive energy, hopefully behind something that deserves it or someone running a club, owning a club that deserves it. They're the ones that can make sure that this is maybe something that we look back on as a, a pretty ugly footnote in their history, but something that yeah. helped to kickstart something quite special, which we've seen happen um, at other clubs before. The last thing I'll say on this matter, and it's nothing to do with Derby County, if you're listing a new sport, another team in the EFL, whether it's a championship club, those are the clubs that tend to lose the most, but League One or League Two clubs as well, you can still lose a lot of money relative to the level that you're at. If your club loses a lot of money each week, if it's a business that makes losses, you should be worried about that. Just because you have an owner who is happy to, at this point in time, foot the bill for those losses, doesn't mean that you always will have an owner who is willing or able to foot the bill for those losses. And quite quickly, when they aren't able to do that, or when they decide that they don't want to do that, you're going to suffer. So even if it feels great that your club may be able to sign players because the owner can foot the bill for high player wages, if your club itself, with its organic revenue, is nowhere near making enough money to cover the cost of your player wages, for example, or the or, or total costs, that should be a concern for you. And even if things are going well on the pitch, you shouldn't get away from the fact that that is a concern and that is something that, that could really come back to hurt you. Now, unfortunately, this applies to almost every club in the EFL. Almost all clubs make losses. So this is where the major concern comes from. Um, but just something to, to, to think about if you're listening to this and you think, this derby, it's not my club. Just look into your finances. Follow Kieran Maguire. He does analysis on accounts of pretty much every club that I've seen. It's not hard to work out if your club is losing millions of pounds a month or hundreds of thousands of pounds a month if you're a League One, League Two club. And that is a worry. And that could cause problems down the line. Nottingham Forest also had a turbulent week, but for footballing reasons, really, uh, because they sacked Chris Hewton. What's your reaction to the Chris Hewton sacking from Forest? Uh, and the fact that Steve Cooper looks like he's um, lined up to replace him. Yeah, I think the Hewton decision had to be made. Um, I, I'm, I'm surprised it's taken this long, to be honest. Something quite clearly wasn't right. I, I have no idea if it was, in any case, the, the, the players who didn't buy into Hewton. Um, quite clearly, the, the relationship between the fans and Hewton broke down quite quickly. I, I think given this kind of new era, we're in of of post Touchwood. This is going to continue, but post COVID football, in terms of now fans are back at games. I think having a having a manager who has had an underwhelming start and then an absolutely terrible season when fans have come back in, um, it kind of makes sense to bring in somebody who can bring some positivity around because a lot of other clubs are quite enjoying having their fans back in stadiums and and are, and are bouncing back. From disappointing times because of that so um, I think it was it's, it's the right decision I think it's sad it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Chris Hewton was to get another championship job fairly soon and probably get another promotion to the Premier League um, I, I'm not necessarily sure this uh, I'm not sure this job is going to do his reputation too much harm uh, I think the days you know before he took this forest job he was linked to every single championship job that was going and the the um, the line that always came out was that he was waiting for a Premier League job. And I'm I'm pretty sure that, <laughs> that one of those isn't, isn't going to be coming anytime soon. But yeah, I think it's the right decision. Um, and it's disappointing for him. Quite clearly, 
he has carried himself with the dignity that we, we always come to expect with Chris Eaton. You know, Stephen Reid said that he spoke to him the night before this game, um, I think probably searching for some advice. There's a bit of irony in that. Uh, in terms of Cooper, I, I think it's a right step. I, I'm quite surprised because I thought, you know, as we've said a lot, I thought Dane Murphy, the old Barnsley man, would, would look to the continent for a young, um, exciting innovative manager but I guess why look to the continent for one of those when you've got one on your doorstep who's already got two playoff berths uh, in two seasons in the championship you know Steve Cooper did an incredible job I think we became immunized to the job that he did because it was so consistently good um you know he took over from Graham Potter who got a Premier League job off the back of a mid-table finish and twice led them to the playoffs but there were possibly some bits in the data that maybe suggested, especially in the second season, that Swansea were um, running a little bit hot. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I wouldn't be too concerned. I think this is a guy who uh, has incredible contacts throughout the game, whose record in terms of, of bringing in loan players is is very, very strong. You know, you look at what Morgan Gibbs-White is doing at Sheffield United this season. Well, that's what he should have been doing at Swansea last season if things had fallen, had fallen right. Um, the, the football itself may not have always been the most exciting. Uh, Swansea fans will say that's a big understatement. Uh, but Swansea probably demand more in terms of style than any other fan base in the country. So I, I don't think Forrest is going to be too put off by the by the Cooper brand so long as the results are the same. So yeah, I think it's exciting. I'm, I'm happy for them and, and I'm happy that they, you know, it, it's a shame for, for Chris Hewton. I don't think there was too much in the performance from Saturday that was much better necessarily than than what we'd seen previously. You know, Huddersfield still created the better chances in the game. Forest were clinical with their with their few opportunities, but that result itself is massive, and it and it means that Cooper's coming into the building of a side who've got their first win, who've got a, a Lewis Graben who's been side of sorts scoring goals, a Joe Lolly who's been side of sorts in the goals too. Um, big, you know, I, I assume he's probably going to be in for the weekend for the visit for the visit of Millwall, and that should be some some atmosphere and some welcome for him. Um, for his first home game off the back of that win. Stephen Reid switched formation away from Hewton's 4-2-3-1 to a, a 3-4-3 with Lowe and Jed Spence as the wing-backs uh, with a back three of, of McKenna, Figueredo and Worrell, uh, Yates and Garner in the centre of the park and then Lolly and Johnson dovetailing behind Graben. And you look at it and it, it just makes a lot of sense on paper. And there's definitely some outcome bias from me here. They won the game. It's their first win of the season. They played with an energy and enthusiasm that, look, if you're looking from outside, it looks like they were playing with the shackles off. You know, that that's that's <laughs> probably the phrase that springs to mind. And, that you know, that, that can't last forever. That can only take you so far. But it was good enough here to beat Huddersfield. I was speaking to Joby McEnough, who obviously... He was a caretaker manager for Leighton Orient last season. And I sort of said to him quite cynically, when you see someone come in on a, on a caretaker basis and you're pretty confident that they are not expecting to get the job. And when the previous manager has, in the eyes of the fans, outstayed his welcome, and particularly when there's been a sticking point in terms of style of play and formation, as there was with Hewton, where in the weeks previously, people were begging just to see something a bit different. I did say quite cynically to Joby, you know, when that's you and the situation he was in last season, do you just change the formation almost for the sake of it, knowing that 
even before the game started, it's a win for you in the eyes of the fans. Um, and he said, no, you don't do that, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. I was kind of, I was leading him down a path to say like, yeah, that's why Stephen Reed's gone 3-4-3 three, because three, the fans have been demanding it. And he went, no, no, you definitely don't do that. You might be aware that it's going to help you, but ultimately you spend like, 36 hours before the game without sleep thinking about the best tactical system to fit the match and to fit the squad so if he switched to 343 it's not likely a sort of PR routine to get the fans on board but actually because uh, it made sense and it did here I think they caught Huddersfield cold a little bit um, I know that the Huddersfield fans were, were disappointed with how they played given that they've started the season pretty well but um, as you say it wasn't probably a 2-0 game on paper or a 2-0 game in terms of the stats. But some some moments of quality from Brennan Johnson, who carried it 50 yards at speed, dribbling past Colwell down the line, crossing on the run straight onto the head of grab. And that was an excellent goal, such an exciting goal to see. Um, well, well, well celebrated by the away fans and well celebrated by the Forest players in their uh, ice lolly kits. Uh, and Joe Lolly had a good game, didn't he? As you said, we, we haven't seen Lolly being Lolly for over a year now, but this is a guy who... In the 1920 season, uh, got nine goals and nine assists in the championship, and in the season before, got 11 and 11. So, um, it could still be a quality player for, for Nottingham Forest uh, if Steve Cooper wants him to be. Let's find out over the next few weeks. Let's get into some of the other mad results in the championship, George. At Fulham 1, Reading 2, we have the softest of soft spots for players like Ovi Ajaria, and sometimes we get accused of going a little bit too far because it's very easy for someone who doesn't enjoy watching Ajaria or just doesn't watch Ajaria very much to look at three goals in 38 games last season, three goals the season before in, in around the same amount of games and say, well, he can't be that good because he's not scoring very much. He's not impacting the game in terms of goals and assists. And there's probably an extent to which that's a fair criticism. But about two or three times a season, George, Ovi Ajaria decides... I feel like scoring some goals today. And Saturday was that day. What a performance. Reading a winning away at Craven Cottage. Incredible performance. And two goals of, of the highest quality as well. Um, the first one, a, a brilliant kind of longer range strike into the top corner. Uh, and the second, just an, an amazing touch. A brilliant ball from Mililovic. Uh, a great touch and, and finish from Ajaria too. He's just a player with so much quality. And, and we've said this, you look now, you know, I think Vika Paunovic's biggest issue he's going to have is, is how to fit them all in suddenly because you've got Swift, Ajaria, Deli Bashiru, and Halilovic all. They went all he basically. Went, he went strikerless. He done what he he did what football manager tactics enthusiasts have been trying for years and go fully strikerless. And it it was actually funny because Callum, who's a Reading fan who we like a lot, said, "By the way, the strikerless formation itself didn't necessarily work very well. Let's <laughs> let's not let's not pretend that that was a stroke of genius, but." You know, the combination play, particularly, as you said, between Halilovic, Ajaria, Swift, it was exciting. And I loved how Halilovic, after the second goal, after his little flicked ball over the top when he had drifted in yeah. field as well, he was on his knees giving it the big in. I know, uh, for I someone know. like him, Straight who's, you know, with the pedigree that he has, always talk about the clubs that he played for or didn't play for in Barcelona and AC Milan. When you see someone enjoying their football like that, it's exciting. It's exciting. I hope we see this more consistently from him now. And what about Luke Southwood? Oh, what the, a save. The player, the player who has profited from, um, you know, the number one and Raphael punching the wall and angst has gone, in, you know, he hasn't kept a clean sheet, but he's played a pretty big part in two back-to-back wins in a week. Um, you know, coming up against Fulham, you know, Fulham had 25 shots in the game. 
Um, he was called on a lot to keep his side in it, and, and he did incredibly well. So, yeah, I, I think as we one more, as we know, one more. Was... What about Josh Laurent playing centre back yes. for the first time ever? Is there anything he can't yeah, do? Yeah. No, nothing. I mean, it it, it was a bit different because the, the Blackpool result against Fulham, um, it was you know that was at home for Blackpool was was impressive because they kind of didn't really let Fulham into it, and this wasn't necessarily that. You know, Fulham hit the woodwork a few times. South have made a lot of saves. They were living on the edge here. It wasn't like they shut the game down and, and, and beat Fulham fair and square 2-1. It was two moments of, of sheer quality. Uh, one from Ajaria, then one from Helenovic and Ajaria um, that, that won this game. Um, but massive for Reading. It's been a huge week for them. Um, I, you know, I still have concerns over them. Defensively, I still think they're going to chip a lot of goals and they need to sort that. But when, you know, it's not going to be for a couple of months or anything, but when, when Jarrell's back, they have their attacking options are, are incredibly good, and we're seeing that Paunovic is a manager who's capable of getting the best out of attacking players as well. So you know, you're in a strong position when you've got probably the best player in terms of form in, in the in the league, and John Swift. He has an off day, and you've got Hilovic and Ajay to step up and and do the job for him. Um, yeah, incredible, incredible result for them. Massive, massive performance. Difficult for Fulham to lose their first home game. Uh, after being so impressive at Craven Cottage so far this season, but there was plenty in the performance. You know, I was more concerned by the Blackpool performance in this one. There was enough in there to show that they're still very, very strong. Yeah, for Reading, one of the great days, and for Fulham, just one of those days. I think you probably have to say uh, Blackpool. You mentioned beat Fulham last weekend, went up to Borough and beat them this weekend. Brilliant, mm. another brilliant win. Uh, this was a game, a two-one win for them, I should say. All three goals following set-piece situations, not. A classic by any means, but a good even game, which even Borough fans that we were talking to suggested Blackpool were, were good for their win. And, and there are some concerns about Borough's recent form, um, which we'll get onto. But just a big up for Blackpool because they, they're easing into the season after a tough start. They had so many injuries, particularly defensively, didn't they? Um, and here they've got a 4-4-2 with Dujon Sterling at right back, Ekpeteta, uh, Richard Kehoe, which is an amazing championship central defensive partnership when you consider where those two have been over the last five, ten years of their lives and careers. Garber at left back and then Bowler, who's really been the star man for them, probably not on the weekend, but in general. Wintle and Dougal in midfield, that, that really sort of sturdy, solid, but technical midfield that we kind of recognised from Blackpool last season as well. And Keshi Anderson out on the left with Lavery and John Jules up front, both of them super lively. Lavery hitting the post again. The bloke is, I've, I've, I don't think <sighs> I've seen a guy come from, I don't want to say from nowhere, he scored a ton of goals in Northern Ireland, but come at his age with his sort of background and impact games and get on the end of chances at a team who isn't exactly like creating a ton for him to this extent. It's absolutely crazy. And the funny thing is he's, he's not finishing that well, but I still think there's a lot of, um, uh, yeah, a lot in his start to his career in the championship. And I think there will be a lot of people watching him pretty closely because if he is this absolute monster when it comes to getting on the end of things, and that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. But I just wanted to point out uh, Marvin Ekpeteta who scored their first goal. Um, and I should, I should credit Joby for this because he played with him at, at Leighton Orient and he pointed out, and it's worth mentioning because this is our favourite thing about the EFL, the, the EFL American dream, as I call it. At 17-18, he was playing in the National League South for East Thurrock. I think he was on loan from Orient. Uh, then the next season, he was in the National League with Orient. Then the next season, he was in League Two with Orient. 
And then last season, he was in League One with Blackpool. And this season, he's in the Championship with Blackpool. He's a, he's a Championship goal scorer, no less, where, what, three and a half years? He was playing in the sixth tier of English football. He has moved up a tier every single season so far, which I absolutely love. And then Borough, just in quite a weird situation at the moment, there's quite a lot of... Uh, disillusion I think with their start to the season and it's and it's not hard to understand why they're just they're really failing to impress they're failing to impose themselves on games um, in fact we had a, a really good point made by Matthew on our not the top 20 squad who's a borough fan saying we're, we're, we're not tough enough to to dominate this league physically like some teams are nor are we technical enough to pass through teams we are less than the sum of our parts that's pretty damning isn't it fuzzy dunlop who tweeted us a sunday scouting report said borough continue to leak sloppy goals Sporaz touch and movement a rare plus point but we're an unbalanced squad short at fullback and defensive midfield lacking identity and cohesion and i recognize all of those things george and you look at the squad and the late business in the transfer window and it looks like a team in transition in terms of taking on a new shape, new profile of player, signings coming from abroad rather than maybe been there, done it types. And you look at the manager in charge of them in Neil Warnock and you wonder whether there's just a bit of a clash here, whether this is a team in transition, which is going towards a destination, but still quite some way off. And there might be some tough times ahead for various personnel within the club. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd like to know more about their recruitment policy because yeah it's not necessarily what we come to expect from um from Neil Warnock well because they hired the the Norwich chief scout who's now head of football at Borough Kieran Scott yes but I'd like to know whether Warnock is effectively on board with this you know it was mentioned in the in the quest show you know Sparar um, was a great pickup by Warnock where I'd like to know how much Warnock has to do with this um I'd, I'd like to know how much what it has to do with James Leicelicki coming in as well with Anel Hernandez. Um, he, he doesn't strike me as a manager who is going to change his ways and be happy to work under, you know, be a bit the head coach model and, and kind of let somebody else run the rest of, of things. Um, it's, it's, you know, well, and also you've really questioned in the past whether or not we feel like he... He can be bothered can be bothered for a season of transition. It feels like they yeah, kind uh, of had a season of transition if you're being kind last season as well. And now they're doing another one. I mean, there's no evidence at all to suggest they're going to be um, looking at the top 10 this season at the moment, I don't think. Um, they are, more, are way, way more likely, in my view, to be struggling towards the bottom end. Although you have to assume, that given the pedigree of, of, of the man making the decisions in, in terms of transfers, that they're probably... Uh, the, the players they brought in are probably going to be very good, yeah. So, uh, is the next thing to do to upgrade to a manager? You know, Neil Warnock was brought in to do a job 18 months ago, which he did. He then got the job full-time and has done very, very little since. Um, I've seen a lot of Borough fans on social media saying, you know, what has he actually done? You look at his record throughout his whole tenure there and they've been average throughout. So, um, yeah, if I was a Middlesbrough fan, I'd be tempted to, to twist, to be honest. I'd be tempted to bring in somebody who matches the um, the, the the recruitment on the playing side of things as well um, before things get a little bit more difficult. So we've got new leaders in the championship, which is exciting. Uh, all of my concerns about, or all of my questions about it, it, it's competitive balance being chipped away at, its status as the most unpredictable league in the world being chipped away at. Well, two fingers up to me this weekend for sure. Uh, and the 
albeit not exactly from nowhere, but the improved form of Bournemouth over the last few weeks has sent them top, the cherries on top, if you will. Um, and although not their biggest win of the season, this uh, 1-0 away at Cardiff, I would say maybe their most impressive win in terms of the opponent, in terms of, of how they controlled the game against a, a team that could be considered quite an awkward matchup for them. Um, they, they were excellent. They, they were certainly good for their 1-0 win. Phil Billing scored a lovely goal. Uh, but again, every single Bournemouth game, we see this combination between Jaden Anthony and Jordan Zamura down the left. The underlapping runs, the clever passes that Anthony makes... You know, he's a, he's a winger that has both scored and assisted goals already this season. But the the smartness of his passing is almost what has stood out most about Jaden Anthony to me. He seems like if he can have someone in Zamura overlapping him, he's just going to constantly play them in. And that's pretty exciting. Both of them had zero league career starts. Zero before this season. Mm. And they've both started... And they've both started every game for a team that's top of the championship. And you'd say the left side has been the dominant part of the pitch for Bournemouth, even though they've got Brooks on the right. It's absolutely crazy. Very, very impressive. Cardiff just didn't threaten at all here. So it's it's that balance between, you know, how good were Bournemouth, how bad were Cardiff, probably somewhere in between. Gary Cahill was excellent. Um, and imagine how much Lloyd Kelly, albeit he he's kind of considered a senior player for Bournemouth now, but he's only 22. I think we forget that because we've been watching him play for four years. Imagine how much Gary Cahill is going to help Kelly improve. Um, that's pretty exciting. Um, for Cardiff, they had 11 points from six games this time last week, which is objectively a good start, almost two points per game there. And then they've had a week where they've lost two games, 1-0, both disappointing performances against Coventry and Bournemouth. And those results in isolation, they're narrow 1-0 wins. They don't seem like a disaster. But as we always say, George, and I've seen it a little bit online with Cardiff fans, when the football is like this, by which I mean very direct, when the energy's not there, when the execution's not there, it doesn't take too many 1-0 defeats many games where you draw a blank for fans to wonder if there's another way, basically, another way of living. Uh, so that's something to watch over the next few weeks for, for Cardiff. It might be that they get back to what they do best and physically imposing themselves and scoring a lot of goals from set plays. But I think they're missing Ryan Giles at the moment. Uh, and that certainly showed here. Posh three, Birmingham nil. Wow. Not really sure where this one came from, George. Uh, Darren Ferguson's not been a happy man over the last few weeks. He's been chopping and changing formations. This was his third different formation in the last three. 4-4-2 in midweek did not work. They lost to Reading. 4-2-3-1. He hit the jackpot here. Um, Siriki was at his wriggling best here, wasn't he? Great to see. Yeah, he was. He was. And it's, it's a huge result for them um, because it's been a really difficult start for Posh. Um, and so to come up against a Birmingham side who've been very impressive so far this season um, for certain players... You know, Siriki is the one you mentioned there, which is important. I know he hasn't scored from open play yet, but for Clark Harris to get another goal. Um, Thompson and Butler, the two fullbacks, were very, very good. George Grant kind of putting in the kind of performance that we know he can. Uh, all around the pitch, it was just a really good performance. And that that is important for them. Uh, for Birmingham, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now because... This is two games in a row that they've been beaten by three goals. They've been beaten 7-1 on aggregate over two games, which is very, very far removed from what we have come to expect from them so far this season. Having said that, I, I said the performance against Fulham, there wasn't too much to be concerned about, in my opinion, because it was Fulham and they actually did okay, even though the scoreline said that they 
um, were well beaten. There was enough in that performance to like. And it was kind of the same again here. Now, I know that they were 1-0 down after a minute. But in terms of that kind of the stats themselves, you know, they had 13 shots to Peterborough's nine. You look at Peterborough's goal, the first one was an own goal, the second one was a penalty. Um, if you're looking at expected goals itself, they won that battle 1.75, 1.15. There were quite a lot of reactive changes from Bowyer made during the game. You know, at halftime, he brought off Bellerin Roberts for Sanderson and Sunjic. Um, Chucks Naker came on for 32 minutes, which is quite a long time for Chucks to get on the pitch. Uh, and they were playing with 10 men for you know, 25 minutes of the game after Guy Gardner's pretty pretty appalling challenge that he got a straight red for. Lee Bowyer is somebody who we've seen previously when things are going well, things go very well, but he often struggles to steer the ship when things start to go wrong. And my analysis of Birmingham this week is that they have been on the receiving end of some, call it variance, call it luck, call it whatever. I, I don't think the performances have been as bad as the performances, as, as the scorelines would suggest. If I was... Boya, I would probably put Dini back on the bench and go back to what they were doing early in the season when they were winning games. Um, because a Dini Yukovic front two isn't something I, I thought we were going to see very often. I assumed it'd be one or the other with with, with Chucks or or Hogan being the the foil. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm not overly concerned for Birmingham, but I am concerned about the way that we might see Boya react. But for Peterborough, yeah, big big win. Um, and good because Bar, you know, you and I were, were pretty confident that the League One promoted teams were going to were going to do okay this season. They hadn't started too well, but more performances like this from Posh and they'll show that they aren't to be written off as as relegation fodder at this stage. Blues fan Ryan giving a lot of credit to just the way that Peterborough started the game and their setup. They were bang at it from the off. He said, looking sharp, always found a teammate with a pass and weren't afraid to spring forward in numbers or play that forward pass. Dembele in great form. Grant in the number 10 role, superb. And Johnson Clark Harris knocked Roberts around. Ward always finding space as well. We made it easy at times, but they were ruthless. And remiss of me not to mention that Posh have, in the last two games at least, an 18-year-old playing centre-back, which is very rare, very exciting. Ronnie Edwards is his name. Ronnie Edwards playing alongside Frankie Kent. I mean, they sound like East London gangsters, don't they? Ronnie Edwards, <laughs> Frankie Kent. We're here to collect some debts. Um, <laughs> he, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. And, and obviously, um, we've heard a lot about him already from Dara McAntony, who says he's the greatest player that's ever lived. And in fairness, with that high expectation that we have, he's, he's certainly... Well, on the weekend anyway, he had an excellent game. One particular brilliant last-ditch tackle on Dini and coped well with that physicality of Djukovic and Dini. So, look, centre-back I don't think is a position of great strength for uh, for Posh. So there's every chance for Edwards to stay in the team. I'm sure he'll stay in the team for the next game. If they continue to play well and Edwards is starting games, there's no reason for him to lose his place. And that's really exciting because how often do we see an 18-year-old starting at centre-back for a championship team? Not very often, George, but Posh need to build on this for sure. Hull 1, Sheffield United 3. This was the early game. Um, first half here, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite an open game. Morgan Gibbs, why we have to talk about again, um, playing in the number 10 role, but with basically license or instruction, probably more likely, when the ball was being built down the left or built down the right, he would drift over and combine with whoever the winger or the fullback was to create overloads in those areas. And there were two or three occasions where 
he found himself in a good position to cross or to make a final pass or to cut inside and shoot. He didn't quite get it right. And then eventually, maybe the fourth time, he absolutely got it right. Really nice play. Great cross onto the head of Sharp. 1-0. And he's still the story for me, Gibbs White, because of what he, he's bringing just in terms of thrust to this uh, Sheffield United <laughs> final third. It is quite remarkable. And it's so exciting. He, he's just impacting every single game, getting a goal or an assist in every single game so far. Um, and that is a, a hell of a thing. In general... I wasn't that impressed with Blades. They're clearly much, you know, they've loosened up going forward, that's for sure. And thank God they have, because it was tough to watch beforehand. But I thought they looked quite loose at the back, actually. I thought that Hull, not for the first time this season, albeit in defeat and just the one goal where previously they hadn't scored any for, for five or six games. I didn't think they played too badly up until the penalty box. I felt that Sheffield United were still a little bit open, still a little bit vulnerable. That's not too surprising that you know they're still kind of finding their feet. But I do think there's a, a good chance a team that attacks them properly and executes properly around the box could still you know, give them a bloody nose. I guess we saw Preston do that in midweek uh, when they drew 2-2 at the lane. So um, good win for Sheffield United, a good week or two weeks now, and it's great to see a positive atmosphere. Um, but still, yeah, still some concern, certainly, about the team as a whole, as excited as I am. And then George Luton 3, Swansea 3. I'm, I'm worried about breaking our rule about not talking about draws, but I'm going to caveat this by saying this one wasn't really a draw. It was two separate 45-minute matches, both of them won 3-0. Uh, one by Luton and then by Swansea. What did you make of this one? I mean, it was pretty hard to make anything anything of it because you know Luton were three 0 up and incredibly good value for their for their lead. Even at half time, you know they hadn't really given Swansea. I mean, they'd given Swansea plenty of the ball, seventy two point eight percent of it to be precise. But um, Swansea didn't really look threatening with it whatsoever. Uh, I personally think that Henry Lansbury was incredibly lucky not to get sent off uh, I've seen a lot of people justifying it by saying his eyes were firmly on the ball and he was trying to I do not buy it at all at all he knew exactly what he was doing um, and it was you know it was naughty and cheeky of the of the guy to stand there but at the same time you cannot just use that excuse just to kick someone as hard as you can in the ankles so um, I thought Lansbury was, was fortunate to get away with that you know you could see how much it riled Jamie Patterson who was then the man who who got the first goal? Um, but the, quite clearly, the goal of the of the game is from um, Oliver and Champ with an incredible strike, another real swerver. Um, that that got them back to three two, and then Joel Peru, the you know the, the current hero at Swansea, who looks like a brilliant little pickup with a quality finish. Uh, I would probably say that if Simon Sluger was a, clearly at fault for the Patterson goal, um, he should have kept it out and then was kind of backpedalling and tried to punch it away before uh, and couldn't do it in time. And I think that Sluga, Sluga probably should have done better for Peruse as well, if I'm going to be brutally honest. It looked like he got a hand to it, um, but was una unable to keep it out. So yeah, I think Luton came away from this with the most credit in terms of, of the way that they were able to pick off Swansea on the break. Um, great to see Elijah Adebayo in the goals again. I hadn't scored since opening day. Um, and... You know, Swansea took their chances. They, it wasn't a case of, of relentless pressure with Swansea creating loads. It was one incredible goal and two, well, one good goal from Peru, but two goals where I think the keeper should have done better. But Swansea will take that point back home gleefully because of 3 0, they looked down and out. Okay, League One, where we had three teams winning their first game of the season. So it's only right that we celebrate them. We'll start with Crew 2, Burton 0. George, it's been a, such a turbulent few weeks, I guess, six weeks or so for Crew. Um, they've ended up with 
much more, uh, well, with a much different squad than they could possibly have planned for, that Dave Artel could possibly have planned for. And that's not just because of them youngsters, particularly Owen Dale and Charlie Kirk leaving, but also because of Tommy Hoban and Sean McDonald choosing to leave as well. So in quite a short period of time, Artel has had to be quite creative and rebuild a squad and certainly try and find his his best starting eleven. And there's a lot of confidence amongst crew fans that they're going to be fine despite the, the poor start and despite waiting, was it seven or eight games for their first win? You can understand why, because in his spell as crew manager, crew have always got better under Dave Artel. He's always found a way and they've always kept improving. Now, there are two new players that we have to talk about. Uh, Janiel Bennett on loan from Tottenham and Scott Robertson on loan from Celtic because that's who all the crew fans are talking about. And I wonder whether it's a bit weird for crew fans because I believe last season they were one of only two or three teams in the whole EFL who didn't have a loanee. Of course, with their ethos in terms of youth development, and giving young players a chance, making sure there's a pathway to the first team for talented young players. You know, you can understand why they wouldn't want to develop other teams' players. But when you lose, what, six, seven starting 11 players in the space of about nine months, you can understand also why you might try and plug the gaps with a, with a low knee or two. And in Janiel Bennett, however they found him, they look like they've got a cracker because he's someone who, for Spurs youth teams, just constantly scored goals, cutting in from the left, really mobile, tricky customer and can finish as well. He made Boswick score the own goal, going left and firing a ball across the box, which Boswick sort of stabbed in, uh, and then scored one himself, cutting in from the right, which I think is what we'll see him do quite a lot. So a lot of excitement about Janiel Bennett, but even though he didn't get the headlines with the goals, I think Scott Robertson in midfield is the one that they're really excited about because he's a young player, a technical player, on loan from Celtic, but someone with real bite as well. I think there's there's an excitement amongst the fan base that him, and particularly Lundstrom as well, young centre midfielder Josh Lundstrom, could... With the, with the qualities that they both have, complement each other pretty nicely in a midfield too uh, and allow them to play maybe four attacking players in front of them and out wide, which would be quite exciting, I think. Um, Ainley played as an advanced midfielder here and you could tell from the first goal, his drive uh, in transition, carrying the ball and then playing in Bennett, uh, really exciting. So a lot of positivity after a good win uh, against this Burton side who are a bit confusing, aren't they, Burton, Albion and George? Because they, they started the season with three wins. They haven't won a league game since then. Not quite in the same way as Borough. I do feel that they are a team who look like they might be changing up a little bit how they're trying to play and maybe sacrificing short-term results in doing so. Like, they've got Harry Chapman now, they've got Johnny Smith. It, It looks like they want to play a bit more of a technical style, which you can understand, but maybe it's not bringing home results at the moment like the the grit and grind approach that we saw from January onwards. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I I went into this season thinking it was going to be unlikely they were going to maintain that level we saw at the back end of last season. Then in the first few games of the season, they looked they look really good. And I was like, oh, right, maybe they are going to do it. And you mentioned there, you know, Chapman and Smith are two class players. So I think we can expect to be two class players for Burton uh, this season, even if they're not necessarily you know, in, in a rich vein of form at the moment. You know, Jefferson came off the bench again, another player who I think we can probably anticipate will be will be very strong. You know, they have these technically gifted young players um I don't think that necessarily means that you have to suddenly change style I think it's a case of getting the ball into feet of those players uh, in advanced areas um you know I don't think we're suddenly seeing Hasselbank's side try and dominate possession and have all the ball that that hasn't been the case you know, even here despite being one nil down away a crew um for for 
80 minutes of the game, um, it was basically pretty much level and they, they did dominate the, sh- the, the shot stats. They probably created enough to at least get a point. But on the day, you know, Will Jaskalainen made probably the save of the weekend from a Kane Hemmings header in the top right-hand corner, which was pretty frustrating for myself, having tipped up a Hemmings goal on the, in the betting show. Um, but that, at one all, is probably the moment that changes the game. You know, if Hemmings, if Hemmings is header where he did everything he could to score, goes in, and Jaskalainen doesn't pull off a save that not many League One keepers, I think, would pull off, it's suddenly one all with half an hour to go and, and you know, you're probably looking at the away team as the more likely to win. So, yeah, I wouldn't be getting overly concerned if I was a Burton fan. Um, I think expectations have probably been been levelled up to a point which is probably unsustainable given the um, strength of the division this season. Um, but for Crude themselves, this is just a huge, huge win. And for David Artel to be doing what he's doing with this with this side, um, given all of the issues he's had in the in the last summer, I mean he's had the, the EFL manager's summer of hell. Uh, is, is incredibly impressive. So so good. Um, and you know it does feel like you mentioned them there. There's a new a new class coming through at, at Crew who who we can expect to, to continue to to push them. Um, at least you know the expectations there now have to be safety. There's no denying that, but. It looks like they're going to have a shot. As I say, the fan base certainly bullish that they can do a lot more than than surviving this season. At Doncaster got their first win of the season. It's difficult this, George, because what I want is for Donny fans to listen this week because they got their first win of the season and hear lovely things said about their team and how they're going to kick on from here. And maybe they will, but the breakdown of the match against Morecambe, their 1-0 win, is very difficult to, uh, to give them too much credit, partly because at 0-0... Morecambe should have had a penalty, uh, fouled by Dahlberg on Greg Lee, which wasn't given as a penalty, uh, much to the dismay of, of Morecambe's fans and staff, understandably. Um, and then you have to say that Dahlberg himself, not that this is a, a criticism because he looks like a brilliant shot stopper on loan from Watford, made an absolutely fabulous save right at the end to deny Cole the goal stopped him. I don't, I'm not saying for a moment that Doncaster were battered by Morecambe here, that this was smash and grab necessarily but just quite a low-quality, low-margin game that they edged. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it, it means that I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, this is their breakout performance of the season and, and only good things will come from here. I did notice that Wellens was really bullish in the week about the fact that, you know, just because they hadn't won in their first six games, he, he wasn't seeing this as like, oh, this has to be a massive relegation battle now. I think he was making the point that, they basically haven't had a settled front three. They've had quite a lot of injuries, a lot of late window shenanigans where they didn't really get the targets that they were after. But it's worth remembering, you know, we cling on to a real support of Richie Wellens and a real a real opinion that he's a very good manager who can make teams better. So it's a big win for Donny and hopefully they can kick on from here. But they will need to perform better than this if they're going to beat um, other sides in the next few games. So let's see if they do that. And then Lincoln nil, Ipswich won. Tractor Boys' first win of the season, George. Um, probably not the best that they've played, actually. But crucially, they didn't give the opposition two goals. And <laughs> that does help if you're trying to pick up three points in a football match. Yeah, it does help. It's a... Yeah, there were some pretty weird scenes after the game with CEO Mark Ashton uh, in his suit, kind of running down the touchline and doing a, a bit of a Brent impression, high-fiving all of the away fans. One of the um, worst things I've ever seen. Yeah, I sent it to an Ipswich sporting friend of mine. He was like, yeah, I love it. I was like, surely that should be Cook or players or just somebody who isn't 
you know, did was he coming out after all of the defeats and kind of holding his hands up in in an apology? Uh, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about it, but that's not the story here. But do go and look at it because uh, can watch it because it is, if anything, quite funny. Um, yeah, massive. I mean, it's a massive win, and and it's good that it's come against uh, you know a, a decent side in Lincoln. Uh, they only had five shots in the game, as you say. It wasn't their most impressive performance. Um, I think it's good news for. Um, well, I, I think. Was, was Walton out? I mean, I know Clarkie was was back in. I think Walton was out. Um, but I'm glad that Clarkie managed to keep the clean sheet because I do feel like long-term he is the right option for Ipswich and they shouldn't be twisting too early. Um, you know, bon is a player who I think we can see is a very good League One goal scorer, at least in terms of getting to the right positions, um, as we saw again here. Uh, it, it wasn't a classic display. It wasn't a display to make me think that they're suddenly going to surge up the table, but getting that one win is is mightily important for them. Um, it, it's hard now to see why they wouldn't they wouldn't improve somewhat. Uh, the key is now going to be getting back to Portman, winning in front of their own fans, because there still is, you know, a big feeling of positivity at the club. They've got two massive games at home next up. They've got Sheffield Wednesday on Saturday, which is huge. I mean, that is a, a proper League One Giants clash, uh, and then they play Doncaster on Tuesday night, which they'd expect to win. So. Six points there, and things can look very, very different at Ipswich pretty quickly. Um, you know, anyone who thinks that their poor start has meant that the preseason favourites are are, um, are not going to be up towards the top end of the table. I think they still might be just through the sheer weight of their cash. Um, but yeah, a big, big win for them, even if the performance itself didn't necessarily suggest um, they're going to suddenly through everybody. Quite aside from the football, I, I know that you'll join me in definitely sending. All of our love and support to Paul Cook. His father passed away, very sadly, about 10 days ago. Continuing to work in a what is a high-pressure environment, um, a very public environment, continuing to, to do anything in the face of one of the largest bits of grief that you can suffer in the death of a parent, I think shows astonishing strength. Sending all of our best to, to Paul Cook. New leaders at the top of the League One, and that is Wigan Athletic, because Sunderland threw away a two-goal lead to Fleetwood. No Sunderland or Fleetwood chat this week. And Wigan beat Accrington 4-1, and that makes it four straight wins for them in the league and the league leaders now. Now, Liam Richardson, the Wigan manager, I I really like this wrinkle. He played over 100 games for John Coleman at Accrington as a player. Then when John Coleman left for Rochdale, uh, controversially, uh, Liam Richardson took over as caretaker for one game and then after the next manager Liam Richardson took over as caretaker or maybe as permanent actually for about 35 games and then Richardson left Aki to join Paul Cook at Chesterfield um, so he left a manager's job for an assistant manager's job which again didn't go down that well I don't think with Stanley and their fans um, and now he's back at his former club as Wigan manager and they were just excellent. They were so strong. As soon as we had this game on in, uh, at Quest, as soon as it started, you could just tell that Wigan were going to win. They were just imposing themselves on Accrington, who had no answers really. And they they just looked like a really strong, confident team. Um, just good, basically good, solid in all areas with quality in the final third as well. So it's pretty exciting, uh, I must admit. I, I really enjoyed the scenes behind the goal, uh, particularly when White scored his first and then second goal so of the season. Good. Uh, I yeah. love I love Liam Richardson, although I like a lot of Wigan's other attacking players and I'd like to see, for example, Lang played through the middle occasionally. I, I like a manager starting his number nine, 
seven league games in a row and them not scoring for six games and him consistently saying, I don't care. He's playing really well. He epitomises this team. He is the man that we want leading the line. Um, it must be amazing for White to have that support. And the two goals were absolutely brilliant finishes. So I'm sure we can expect to see a few more. Um, go on. It's also just in terms of, of quality and depth. I think that's a key thing here for Wigan. Um, you know, we saw McLean, Keenan, and Lang play behind White. When you've got Green Edwards, Stephen Humphreys and Jamie jo- and Jordan Jones, sorry, coming off the bench, that is three players who would waltz into most League One sides, in my opinion. Um, I know that Guion's had a difficult time at, at Ipswich, but he's a player who I'm a big fan of. Humphreys, I'm sure, in time is going to get his opportunity starting. And, and you know, Jordan Jones last season was um, incredibly strong. Um, so I, I think this is a Wigan side. I've seen them creep up the betting um, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think they do look to me, you know, we've said it loads of times, I think any doubts we had over Liam Richardson um, are a, a, a long banished now. He seems to be, um, you know, the, all those reports about Paul Cook um, and how, the importance of Liam Richardson, they all seem to stack up now. Um, Wigan are, are currently the second favourites to win the league behind Sunderland at 13-2 to with Betfair. Uh, and I think that's accurate. They do look to me to be, I mean, if anything, I'd probably have them closer to Sunderland in the betting um, because they look very, very strong. Okay, Wickham 2, Charlton 1. The result here, not much of a surprise to you, George. Wickham were your nap on the betting show on Thursday. Confusing when the teams came out. Nigel Atkins making six changes for Charlton. Not many of them enforced either. Um, Dylan Jersimi, Charlie Kirk... Uh, ben Watson and Adam Matthews, none of them were even in the squad and Adkins confirmed that none were injured. It was all selection decisions. He said afterwards, we've now got a very big squad of players from having a small squad of players. So slightly peculiar and quite a big re- reaction to a poor run of, uh, of form, poor run of performances, you have to say. It didn't really make much of a difference in the end. Uh, Wickham, as you predicted, imposing themselves on Charlton uh, and with that extra bit of quality now in Gareth McCleary, uh, helping them over the line here. Yes, some serious quality from McCleary. Um, he is 34. Um, you know, he is a, an amazing case of, of Gareth Ainsworth getting his hands on a player and saying, no, you're not done yet. Let's get you back to where you once were. And he is often looking good, too good for League One, to be honest. Uh, yeah, bit of a heart in the math moment. I mean, Wickham were, were coasting this one, having hit the woodwork early on, then going two goals ahead. Uh, I thought it was job done and then um, Charlton scored late and then very, very nearly nearly scored a two goals in injury time to make it two all, which would have been heartbreaking in terms of the, the betting show. Um, I, I'm not overly surprised, I guess, that Adkins made those changes. It does feel to me like um, probably his time at the club is, is, is on, he's on borrowed time unless things change pretty quickly because they... This isn't just poor results. This is performances that you just can't really see why there would be an improvement at the moment. They're second bottom. They've got a, a massive, massive game midweek on Tuesday night away at Gillingham, uh, which I think is probably the one where if they lose that one, given how poor Gillingham have been this season, Thomas Sangard, the owner, is, is probably going to have the decision made for him. Um, it's not going to be particularly cheap, I wouldn't think, to to um, sack Nigel Adkins given his um, you know, I wouldn't have thought he'd be particularly cheap to have brought in himself so yeah it's it's not a good time at Charlton at all uh, there's no style there's no, no um, it doesn't really feel to me like it doesn't it matters who's going to be playing because there is so little confidence in terms of what they're doing 
know, Harry Arter came in into the side uh, and started here, who is a player who, who really should be dominating games at this level and, and should be able to deal with the, the physical threats of, of, of Wickham. Um, but Dobson and Arter were fine, but they, they weren't able to, to, to kind of control the game in the way that Charlton would want to. I'm still just pretty unsure as to what Charlton's in their 13 shots they had was was more than we've seen them had in plenty of games this season. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a difficult time to be a Charlton fan, and um, you know I hope that things improve pretty soon. And I like Nigel Atkins a lot, and I hope it improves for him. But it, it's it's becoming difficult to see why uh, both the fans and 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 the owner wouldn't be looking to to make a change in the dugout fairly soon. Wimbledon lost 1-0 at home to Plymouth Argyle. Uh, this was, uh, I, I was sort of watching this game quite closely because both sides, you'd say, have had um, surprisingly good starts. Just it, it, maybe not to their fans, but in the in the wider League One sphere. Uh, and it was Argyle who left with all three. That means that since losing on opening day to Rotherham, where they were 2-0 down, conceded some soft set-piece goals in the first half of that first game of the season. Since then, it's 14 points from six games, and they've only conceded two in that time. Um, the back three, which is all new back three, uh, Jordan Houghton at the base of midfield, all four new additions contributing to a an increased solidity that I think makes Argyle one of the most exciting teams in the division. If you look at their underlying numbers in attack, they are not amazing, but they are scoring goals at the moment uh, in Hardy and Jeffka and Ennis. Hopefully when he returns from injury, they've got really good quality attacking players who suit the system that they play. They seem to have improved their depth across the pitch. They're not as reliant on Mayer, who's absent at the moment. They're not as reliant on George Cooper um, as they were previously for, for chance creation. Just look like a really good all-round team now. And I wonder if people are maybe... I don't. I can't speak for other people, but I wonder if there might be a bit of a feeling of like, oh, they're probably just running a bit hot. Um, you know, they, they really struggled last season and they had that poor defence and it's unlikely that they're, they're going to challenge. The way that they're playing... And the extent to which they seem to have sorted their problems at the back makes me think that they could be almost anyone, right? Like the way that Argyle play, I would be so excited if I was an Argyle fan right now, especially because, as I say, I think people are sleeping on them a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree. I think especially defensively, they are um, a side who just don't look like they're going to give up many chances to any side. But we're going to see... Well, we're going to learn a lot about them, I think, in midweek because they come up against a Pompey team who, yes, I know they're not in the best form themselves, but um, it will still be a, a tougher test for Plymouth. I mean, they, they're in that enviable position where they're so solid defensively and yet they've got enough individual quality in advanced areas that they may not be the most cohesive attacking unit as we've seen from Ryan Lowe in the past. But, you know, Ryan Hardy's finish was sublime and, and you know, the, the shimmy to, to sit down the defender and the goalkeeper was brilliant they've got Luke Jeffcoat who's hit some form this season already Kieran Agard coming off the bench um, they've got Broom in attack midfield you know they've got loads of players there who are going to cause teams problems so the work that they've done in the summer is is as good as anyone I think um, and they now look in a much stronger position you know great testament to them they had their man in Ryan Lowe they went on a terrible run in the second half of last season they maintained the faith with him and invested in him to improve them this time around. And they look like a completely different side. Random to say, but one of my favourite owners in the EFL, Simon Hallett. I heard him on the Business of Sport podcast, The Athletic, last season. Um, I, I 
heard him on a, a separate podcast, uh, an, an American investing podcast randomly that I came across on Twitter last week. Just love listening to the way that he talks about managing his club, his boyhood club, where, which he grew up watching, uh, and his approach to decision-making for Argyle, understanding, um, you know, both being sort of, both being ambitious in what he's trying to do with the club, but also understanding how football works and, and not overextending themselves. Um, it's it's <clears throat> it's amazing. So, yeah, I'm really pleased to see them start the season well. Pompey lost 2-1 to Cambridge, the first time Cambridge have ever won at Fratton Park. I think it's the first time they've beaten Pompey since the 70s. Just an amazing away day. I'm really pleased for Cambridge United fans because they had a 10 out of 10 promotion last season in League Two and none of them could watch it. I know they had a few. They actually had a few fans in in that sort of trial period between November and December. I actually think their results were quite bad when their fans actually went to the Abbey to watch them. Um, but they had to watch this, you know, season, this dreamlike season where no one expected them to do anything with a complete rookie manager um, who used to go and watch them play when he was a kid, um, at, with a, a striker who'd never scored more than ten goals before, scoring thirty plus, and Wes Hulan, and they couldn't see it. Um, and then they they get promoted to League One. And everyone, by which I mean us, says nah, they can't. They can't stay up. They won't stay up. You know, it's too hard. It's too hard for them. They're asking too much. And they've started brilliantly. They've started absolutely brilliantly. And they've gone to Portsmouth and they've won in front of those away fans who absolutely deserve this. And but Bonner is some manager, I tell you, because mm. out of possession, his Cambridge side. And I did make the point on Quest that this wasn't the case last week in their five-one home defeat to Lincoln. But almost all of the time, you can you can rely on them to be very good out of possession, to have a good game plan, to make things difficult for an opponent for an opponent uh, to get into dangerous areas. That's exactly what they did to Pompey. Um, Pompey had a lot of the ball in almost no dangerous areas. Harrison was really isolated up top. And unlike last week where Scully tore Williams apart a right back, the fullbacks defended the wide areas really, really well. Curtis and Harness would have been licking their lips having watched those highlights from, from the 5-1 win um, that Lincoln had against Cambridge. But they were shackled. So... Really impressive. Ironside's doing a great job up front, you have to say. Definitely had my concerns about him being able to, to fill the void left by Mullen, but he's doing a good job so far. And Liam O'Neill with an absolute screamer was was brilliant. Pompey have lost their last four games now in all comps, uh, and their last win came on the 17th of August. Uh, so it's, it's a while away since Pompey last won, and probably not to quite the same extent as Charlton fans, but to a pretty large extent, there's some growing concern amongst the fan base. So I think we, we need to crack on because we're going on long and we've got places to be. <laughs> we'll talk about Pompey in the coming weeks for sure. George, do you want to talk about uh, Bolton nil, Rotherham 2 or Jill's 1, MK Don's 4? I think Bolton, I think we talk about Bolton nil, uh, Rotherham um, two. 2 because this was the game. I think... We anticipated this would eventually happen, I guess, didn't we? I think we knew that Rotherham were capable of beating a very good side in um, in League One. And, you know, Ben Wilde scored a brilliant first goal. And those are the kind of chances, you know, we talk about their XG and this and that. But, like, Rotherham have been missing chances, um, much better chances than that. And it was only a matter of time until one of them just basically flew in. Um, it was a good game. You know, I tipped it up for over two and a half goals. and. They both hit the woodwork at 2-0, which is fairly typical. Um, but this is, a, a, I guess, the kind of the match itself that confirms to those doubting, you know, Rotherham coming into this game very much a mid-table side in the, in the early table. Um, coming up against a Bolton team who've scored freely all season and, and beaten some very good sides. 
um, and Rotherham just did a job on them, basically. Uh, I still think this is a Rotherham side who are going to be right up there towards the end of the season. And they needed results now because they needed some points on the board. They didn't want to let this um, unlucky run of, of, of results and games uh, turn out to be just a poor start to the season where they're playing catch-up uh, and, and getting a win like this, especially against the side above them in the table, was really important in doing that. MK went to Jules and left 4-1 winners, helped in part by pretty silly red card from O'Keefe in the first half for Gillingham after they had taken a, a surprise lead against a run of play, you have to say. Um, O'Keefe's first yellow card was for, I think, throwing or kicking the ball away, which is pretty stupid. And his second one was for uh, making a foul in the box, which led to a penalty and a second yellow card. Uh, and from then on, it was a bit of a training session, uh, attack v defence. MK Dons is 84% possession. Might take some beating this year. Um, I'm sure Russell Martin Swansea will give it a good go if they ever play for, for the majority of a game against 10. But that possession number gives you an idea of how this one looked. Uh, I was watching it pretty closely. And I'm enjoying watching MK Dons at the moment. Uh, they're playing the good stuff left over from the Martin era. Uh, era. Um, but they're much more pragmatic as well. They look so much more comfortable, willing to mix it uh, in midfield. They've still got Kasumu to come back from injury, who I think outside of... MK Dons is probably not rated as highly as those within the club rate him. They, they really think Kasumu could be something pretty special, sort of combative, do-it-all midfielder type. So when he comes back from injury, there's a lot of excitement about what he can add. And they're in excellent form, aren't they? Since Liam Manning came in, as we've discussed a few times, they, they've just, you know, not a bump in the road, really. And they look they look so exciting. Peter Kyoso, the right wing back, scored a brilliant goal in a sort of striker's position. What's a goal? Um, really good passing and movement, mm. again, against 10 men, so you have to caveat that. Um, O'Reilly playing 120 passes in midfield. I mean, this is a, a 20-year-old who's just having the time of his life at the moment who decided to move away from Fulham because he didn't see a pathway into the first team, but who a lot of people thought was probably too good to be playing League One football, even at his age. And we're seeing that pretty clearly uh, already. So great win for, for MK Dons. Um, looking forward to seeing how they go next time out and, and Troy Parrott again lively without scoring, which is frustrating for my betting show pick. <laughs> Cheltenham won Oxford nil, George. Why don't you tell me about this one? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a pretty typical Oxford performance so far this season in many respects, where um, Oxford had a lot of the ball, especially in the first half. The best chances came from James Henry kicking it really hard at the goal from 25 yards plus. Um, Matt Taylor cutting a pretty forlorn figure up front on his own. And then Cheltenham creating the best, quite clearly the best and pretty much the only good goal scoring opportunity from the game and taking it and then being very, very comfortable in terms of preventing Oxford from going back into the game. You know, this is the Cheltenham side who under Mike Duff are just so well drilled, so well organised and make it very, very difficult for any team to create many chances against them. Um, and always have a knack of, of finding themselves able to 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 create themselves on the break. So, yeah, it's been a bad bad week for Oxford after a nil nil draw against Wickham, three uh, one defeat at Plough Lane, and then this. You know, after a very very good start, I think some of the preseason optimism is definitely starting to subside. With a lot of Oxford fans frustrated that what is quite clearly a very very good squad uh, is struggling to show it on the pitch. I mean, there are some changes that I would like to see made. I mean, I, I, I think Gavin White playing at left wing is is not the one. He's a, you know he's an aggressive goal scoring striker. He wants to get the ball on his right foot on that right flank and able to to kind of come in across goal. It's what we've seen most of his, his best performances come from there. Um, it's yeah difficult, but for for Cheltenham another just really impressive victory. They are 
Um, well, Mike Duff, his stock just continues to rise in my, in my mind. He's, he's destined for some some pretty good things. I think <clears throat> the the championship chairman who decides to to take a chance on him um, is going to be rewarded for it. Woof. We're big Mike Duck fa- Mike Duck <laughs> quack. We're big <laughs> Mike Duff fans, and also in his early steps in senior management, we're quite big Rob Edwards fans, aren't we? And this is how we segue to League Two because Forest Green are the league leaders. They went to Stevenage, hashtag tough place to go, and they bin them off four 0 And we're increasingly seeing George that when Forest Green are at it which they haven't always been in the last few games. Teams at League Two level essentially can't handle the amount of technical quality, the amount of attacking quality. Most of it coming from their wing-backs, Nicky Cadden and Wilson, the right wing-back, who are just inevitable. I mean, Cadden's already got a hat-trick of goals in a game this season. I think it was against Crawley. And he, mm. got, he got a hat-trick of I assists. I love that hat-trick of goals. Such a nice formal way of saying a hat-trick. If you let me finish my sentence, you'd have understood why I specified <laughs> the goals. And he got a hat-trick of assists on the weekend. Uh, now, I think okay. Opta, whoever does it, has only given him two. Potentially, his cross to Wilson, the other wing-back, for the first goal, which was a lovely finish. Maybe it took a nick off a defender, or I think it went under defender's studs, and they've gone, oh, well, if it took a touch, even a flick off anyone, that means it's not an assist. Bollocks. Um, it was a brilliant... <laughs> Brilliant Ooh. bit of uh, brilliant bit of play, uh, and he got a hat trick of assists. I'm telling you, and they're just getting so much from their wing backs in this three four one two formation. And people are struggling to keep up with them at the moment. George Forest Green 19 points, Leighton Orient in second on 15. They're already five ahead of the team in fourth place. Yeah, I think Forest Green. Anybody <laughs> that initial early good form followed by a couple of disappointing results. I think people might have thought that we'd gone a bit early on Forest Green, but they. I don't think so at all. They look absolute class. And again, we saw, as you say, all the protagonists playing their part in this one. Um, Jake Young also coming off the bench to, to get the fourth goal. Um, they are just, look to me, to be a well-oiled winning machine. And I think the same can, can be said of Leighton Orient too, who have started the season, I think under the radar is wrong, but I don't think people are necessarily giving them the credit that they deserve. You know, Kenny Jackett came in in the summer. I think a few people were surprised. He dropped down to League Two. But he is... Um, rebuilding his reputation in a big way because this is an Orient side who are so impressive in terms of what they're doing. You know, they may not create plenty of chances. They are very, very clinical. And Harry Smith, they've got a target man who um, Drin and Archibald are enjoying playing off. Um, they are very, very solid in defensive areas, as, as you'd expect from a, a jacket side. Um, you know, for, for Joey Barton's Bristol Rovers, this was another torrid, torrid um, game in, a, in what's been a dismal start to the season. But they did come up against Leighton Orient side who looked to me to be one of the one of the best teams in the division and who we can expect to, to remain towards the top end as well. So, um, yeah, delighted for, for Orient. I think they're going to be difficult for any team to beat. Got to, got to wonder what the future of Joey Barton is at Bristol Rovers though because um, they look like the side who could really struggle this season. You know, I say that Orient look like one of the best sides in, in the division. I think Rovers look like one of the worst and that, you know, no caveats, no nothing around that. If you, if you forgot all of the um, context around each team and you looked at this from a purely neutral point of view, you know, we, we spoke about who else is there with Scunthorpe and Oldham, who else is there who could be down there? And you kind of, you glaze over Bristol Rovers because you just assume it's going to get better. Well, is it? I don't see why. The only reason we think it's going to get better is because they came down because they spent some, you know, their, their budget's fairly high. And they've got a high-profile person who's done okay in management in League One as their manager. Well, 
I don't think that's enough because on the pitch they are they are dire. Almost no redeeming qualities from any of their performances this season, even mm. the ones that they won. Uh, I think they beat Oldham 1-0, didn't they? Uh, and then they beat Crawley 1-0 uh, in a game that Crawley more or less dominated away from home uh, at the Mem. So, yeah, concerning. But I'm, I'm just impressed with Orient at, at, a, at a stage in the season where there aren't many teams who have clicked yet. Uh, Orient seem to be very business-like in how they go about things and how they're winning games. I think that bodes pretty well for the future. Um, Tim said they had it wrapped up by half-time and wanted to shout out Alex Mitchell on loan from Millwall. Uh, he was the one who, uh, I think he was on loan at Bromley last season in the National League, really impressed their fans. Rowett loved the look of him in pre-season. I think kept him around a bit longer than otherwise before sending him out on loan because he wanted to see if there was a, a chance to give him some first-team action. But of course, Millwall fairly well stocked at centre-back. So he's gone out on loan, uh, looks like a, a brilliant player already, only 19 years old. Um, they switched to three at the back since he joined and he's doing really well in that sort of right centre-back position, allowing James, the wing-back, to get nice and high up the pitch and not lose too much on the defensive end because he's there to cover. So really exciting times for them. You talk about other teams outside of Oldham and Scunny to be concerned about. I'd like to raise Walsall as a potential team to be concerned about because they lost 2-1 to Newport on the weekend. I think this is two poor teams, to be honest. Newport were winless in four before this. They really needed this win. It wasn't necessarily the most convincing, although they, they deserved it on the day. I think two poor teams, Newport and Walsall, uh, on the current uh, evidence that we have. And for Walsall, I mean, sickening when a former player scores against you. In this case, it was a former player scoring and assisting against you. James Clark and Cameron Norman combining for the winning goal, both of them at Walsall last season. Um, both of them leaving and joining Newport County. Not a hint he of enjoyed a his celebration, didn't he? Not a not a hint of a muted celebration from either. So I'm not sure what the context was there, but uh, especially sickening for the Walsall fans in the away end. Um, I, I can't give too much credit for Newport because I've not been impressed with the way they started the season. I spoke about it on last week's Monday pod, and this result doesn't make me change my mind hugely. That doesn't mean that it can't be changed with a few more better results and performances. Um, but I think that they, they came up against one of the worst teams in the league here. So a 2-1 home win is is standard. Um, both goals scored from crosses and headers. Um, I think actually Dimitrius was just a scramble in the box after a set piece. But my concerns come from from Walsall. Their, underli their underlying numbers are very poor. Uh, the underlying numbers suggest that defensively they are very leaky, very porous. And if it wasn't for their Brighton loney keeper Rushworth, they'd probably have fewer points than the eight that they have from their eight league games so far. Going forward, they just haven't clicked. They've had moments of individual quality like they did with the goal in this game from Shade. Um, last week in their win, we talked about George Miller, didn't we? Uh, kind of doing it all on his own. Um, brilliant performance up top, but the system itself is not working so far. So lots of work for Matt Taylor to do. Port Vale beat Harrogate 2-0. The last unbeaten record in League 2 uh, gone. The Sulphurites beaten by the Valiants. Two good nicknames, those. Um, and, <laughs> and two excellent goals, you have to say. David Worrell, absolutely beautiful, like half volley with the outside of his right foot, starting it two metres outside the goal and then fading it back into the to the far corner. Absolutely magnificent. What a player Worrell is, by the way, at this level. Uh, I think severely underrated by the outside observers. Uh, and then and then James Wilson, who has not scored for a long time, with a really good goal as well. It reminded me a bit of Pat Bamford, the way that he cut in and um, really yeah. powerful low shot into the far corner. Port Vale, are, I'm scratching my head a bit, George. They've beaten Forest Green, Swindon and now Harrogate. Uh, that's their th only their three wins in eight games so far. They're struggling to beat bottom half teams when they're favourites to do so. I, I never really know what to think about teams like that. Th that is something that 
could hold them back if if they've got real lofty aspirations. But clearly, against the very top teams, they show they are they are a very good side. Yeah, I think at this stage, I'd be much more I'd be happier about those performances and concerned about the others because it shows that they have a a level that they can operate on with their players that is as good as any in this division. Yes, they've had some bad results and performances too, but this is a, a team who definitely, or a club who are definitely in transition with a new structure in terms of the management um, and with a whole host of new players brought in in the summer. So this is, you know, another performance and result that has me thinking that Port Vale are, are, are a team to keep an eye on, I would say. Um, I think when you're beating three sides who've had such good starts, especially that Harrogate result as well, with Harrogate looking so strong, basically keeping them at arm's length throughout. I think they're going to be um, up there towards the end of the season. I'd be, I'd be pretty, if I was a Vale, Port Vale fan, yes, frustration at dropping points in those five other games, but, but definitely positive about what, what can be achieved this campaign. The Tramier-Salford game kind of hinged on a bizarre first half where there was a penalty given, I think fairly for handball, albeit unfortunate for the defender who... It was just a poor touch up onto his arm that was uh, kind of sticking out a bit. Then a red card for Ibu Torre, which I think was a red card based on the way that he went into that tackle. Even if when we Mm. slowed it down frame by frame in a quest, you could see there was either no or very little contact on the Tramir player. I still think that sort of stamping motion with a bouncing ball and a player poking it away, that's too dangerous for me. And it's dangerous play. And I think it's a correct red card. Even if people like to say, well, there was no contact. I don't think that necessarily matters. I think if you make a dangerous play, you should still be sent off regardless of whether you end up breaking someone's leg or not. Um, And and Elliot Nevitt, a really popular goal scorer for Tranmere fans. Uh, They signed him from Warrington Rylands. He's got a hat-trick at Wembley in the FA Vars final. Um, he moved up four tiers from the eighth tier of English football to the fourth tier. He's now their main striker and Lord knows they need one. And they've been really pleased with the way that he's applied himself. He's, he's clearly got into some serious shape, which he was not in, unsurprisingly, for a semi-pro player. Um, and everyone's been buzzing off his performances. So for him to get his first goal, 21, first professional goal after playing in the eighth tier last year, that is, that's what it's all about. So a, a great day for, for, for Tranmere fans at Prenton Park. Georgia, Colchester nil, Crawley won. Crawley had only won seven of their last 44 away league games. Not a good side on the road, but doing the business against Cole U on Saturday. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is probably the most mid-table of mid-table games in my head, I think. Um, two sides who I think have shown enough this season to suggest they're not going to be in, in dire danger of being in the bottom two, but I can't really see either having the quality to to trouble those towards the top end. Um, but yeah, good for, for John Yems and for Crawley to get that away win. It's something that, that's been lacking and something we haven't seen too often. Um, and frustrating, you know, this is pretty pretty um, base analysis, but frustrating for Colchester, who've put in some decent performances recently and have, have beaten some sides that would give them hope of, of more this season um, to come unstuck against a side in Crawley, who've been uh, so poor away from home. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... it's. I'm not going to make any sweeping judgments here. As I say, I think it's two sides <clears throat> who um, who are destined for, for mid-table finishes, having a pretty tight, t- tight game and, and the away team just coming out on top. Exeter beat Sutton 2-0 and Alex, an Exeter fan on our NTT20 squad, was pretty honest in his assessment, saying, quite frankly, a robbery was committed. Sutton, excellent for 60-65 minutes, disrupting Exeter's flow in building attacks and had some very good chances as well that they squandered. But 
where Exeter in the last few weeks have seen a Matt Jay masterclass, a Giovanni Brown masterclass that we saw last weekend. This time it was new striker Sam Nombe who showed why we think he's got some real potential, stretching defences, running in behind, holding off defenders and finishing. I think the first goal was actually given as an own goal fairly, although he's trying to claim it. The second goal was certainly his incredibly selfish piece of play, not to not to just square it to Jay for a tap-in, but Jay seemed genuinely delighted about it and really happy for him, which was a nice sign. And I just I wanted to flag up that those three, albeit Jay wasn't a, a summer signing, considering Exeter lost Ryan Bowman, Joel Randall and Randall Williams over the summer. Uh, it's pretty impressive that their front three are all combining and starting the season really well. So good piece of recruitment there. And even though Carlisle and Scunthorpe drew, I can't ignore Jordan Gibson, who is ripping it up in the last week or so for Carlisle. We, we ran out of time to talk about him last week. He got an incredible assist. One of the best bits of play I've seen in League Two this season to set up a goal uh, last weekend and then this time out he was the one who inspired their comeback 2-0 uh, down to Scunthorpe at half time they drew 2-2 really talented sort of winger attacking midfielder type uh, David who's on the NTT20 squad who knows everything about the League of Ireland said that he was probably the best player in the League of Ireland in the opening few months of last season um, struggled to maintain it over the course of last season lots of reports that he falls out quite easily with managers so it's a it's a man management job from Chris Beach but even in three games or whatever it's been I've seen enough from him to know that in league two in the final third he can be a big difference maker and he got the goal and the assist um, to, to get them to come back from 2-0 down this bumper podcast of not the top 20 has been sponsored by Betfair we're so grateful for their continued support and that of the NTT 20 squad which is a growing community of EFL lovers on Leveller uh, which you can sign up to uh, it is a subscription service around £5 a month but you can have a two week free trial if you want to check it out and see what it's all about we did some exclusive content on there this week and we've got much more planned George we also have a football question proposed by the squad and a non-football question the football yeah. question came from Alex and it was if you had to choose two EFL managers to swap places and take over the other's team which two would you choose and why I found this difficult from a footballing perspective easy so I've taken the easy approach I would swap ah. Matt Taylor and Matt Taylor <laughs> Okay, I would swap uh, Liam Richardson and Paul Cook because Cookie has some unfinished business at Wigan and loves the club and loves the fans. And now they're back on the you know on the upward charge. I think he would be good there. And Liam Richardson is just a really exciting manager. Cookie hasn't had a great start to life at Ipswich. I feel like Richardson would do a great job there. So I think all parties, well, maybe Wigan fans wouldn't be over the moon given how well they're doing. But <laughs> All parties would be happy-ish. That's an excellent answer. My other jokey answer was maybe Mark Robinson, Carl Robinson and Stephen Robinson could all sort of play musical Are chess. Are you joking? Switch do you, it up. Do you, want to, do you want to just annex us, this podcast, from all AFC Wimbledon fans by suggesting that Carl Robinson manages them? I think <laughs> you'd love Mark Robinson to manage Oxford. Anyway. Mm, yeah, good way, of, good way of spinning that one. <laughs> and lastly, uh, the non-footballing question. Dave asked, what location in the world should everyone visit that maybe they wouldn't hear about without you bringing it up? Now, you're a well-travelled man, George, a man of the world. You've got so many options here, I don't even know where you're going to start. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, Shall I go and then you can have a think about it? Yeah, you, you go first. I'm going to say Slovenia. Particularly, go to Slovenia for three to five days. Base yourself in the beautiful capital city of Ljubljana. Take day trips to Lake Bled, one of the most glorious lakes that I've seen. 
<laughs> and then also take a day or two to go down the river Socha, um, which has to be seen to be believed. The turquoise water, the setting, beautiful. Get a kayak or a canoe, get a tent and just enjoy yourself. Um, it's a small country, which means that you can base yourself in Ljubljana and pretty much do everything from that base. And that's obviously where you're going to get the best nightlife, the best restaurants as well. Really cool town. I think a lot of people think Slovenia is in Eastern Europe because it sounds a bit like Slovakia, but it borders Italy. In fact, Italy is not far away at all. So they have very good pizza as well. That's another reason why I like it. This answer has been brought to you by the Slovenia Tourist Board. <laughs> Slovenia, you've got to see her. I've even done a jingle. Nice. Okay. I mean, I'm going to do one that you and I went to together. And it's because I think Aww. a fair few of our listeners will, will, will play golf. That's so, so let's sweet. do a golf one. Because there are others that are more like, I could do so many other, well, European cities, but I feel like after Ljubljana, which is gorgeous, I should say. Loved it there. Um, it would be a shame to do another. Although, yeah, Gdansk is also a good one to go to if you want to have a combine a bit of um, bit of beach time and a bit of city time as well. Um, I am going to say El Saler which is a golf course that you and I went to. If anyone likes golf, you can you can book it on all those your golf travel things. It's like second or third rated golf course in Spain. It's unbelievably tough, uh, but it's it's a links course in Spain, which isn't necessarily that that common. But the great thing about it is not only is it a brilliant course and worth traveling to just for that alone, but you're also 15 minutes Uber away from Valencia and Valencia is a fantastic city. The first time I went to Valencia, I ended up meeting up with Mike Holden of, of Fox Punter XG Ratings fame and had a couple of cervezas in the uh, in town. But no, when you and I went, it's great because you can go there, you play your golf, you're in an Uber, you're in Valencia 15 minutes later with an incredible amount of culinary delights on offer for you in, in a brilliant city that also has a beach as well. So if you're looking for a, a maybe slightly different boys trip to go and play golf um, with a, a seriously tough but very, very good course, um, that is one that's right up there, in my opinion. Two words, Cafe Infanta. Two more words, Duck Samosas. That's all I'll say on the matter. Um, thank you very much for the questions. And please, if you feel like you want to check out the NTT20 squad, there's always a lot going on there. we got channels, separate channels for betting, for gaming, uh, for non-EFL chat. But of course, it's all about the EFL games. It's all about um, insight and opinions. And it's brilliant. Great atmosphere on there as well. So please do join the squad. The link is in the description of this podcast. We hope to see you there. And we hope to see you again listening to this pod on Thursday. We'll be back with the betting show uh, we're on sky on friday night which we're very excited about we're going to be doing another hopefully well researched and pleasing segment so join us then uh, and thanks so much for listening to the not the top 20 podcast sponsored by betfair <laughs>